Good morning, everybody and graduates. Let me extend my congratulations to you. We'll have a a recognition and honoring time at the end with Rob and Ian and leading through that, but especially those of you who are extended family and friends who are here for our graduates, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for being a part of a Sunday morning worship where we can look in God's word together. And I believe we're timed up well in Joseph's series for a timely word, not just for our congregation at large or for my own life, but for our graduates themselves. I thought, boy, of any chapter perhaps that could be a very important chapter for our seniors heading off into the next chapter, I think, where we find ourselves today. Open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 39. We're in this series on the life of Joseph, and we started off with Joseph raised in brokenness. We talked about how the brokenness of your past will not derail God's plans for your future. Any hearty amens to that? The brokenness of your past will not derail God's plans for your future. And we talked about that from the brokenness of Joseph's past and that God's not done with him yet. And then we left him alone in darkness at the bottom of a cistern in Genesis 37. And we talked about in that chapter how there's times in life, right, where you just keep living and you'll find yourself in the middle of the dark all alone, wondering where is God and where am I going and how am I going to get there and on a wagon ride headed to who knows where. And in those moments, though the circumstances of our life may not be well, We can say as a people, it is well with my soul. Why? Because God is with me. He is with me in the middle of the mess. Though the circumstances may in fact be a mess, God is there and therefore we can say as a people, it is well with my soul. And we left Joseph off right there a couple of weeks ago. He was sold by his brothers after being tossed into a cistern, sold by his brothers to some Midianite merchants, placed on a wagon headed to he had no idea where. We find out at the end of chapter 37, he's headed off to Egypt, and that's where we pick up the story now, Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Underline this in your Bibles. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, when his master saw, underline, the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. We're going to make three observations about the way temptation approaches us in our lives and what we can do in pushing back against it. The first observation comes from these first four verses, that temptation often strikes in our lives in times of favor. Notice in the text here, Potiphar Potiphar's an Egyptian military leader. It would be very common for them in their day to have household servants. Much like the White House has butlers, Potiphar would have servants like Joseph. So he sees this young Hebrew on a Midianite merchant wagon saying, hey, I'll buy him for X number of dollars. They sold him for uh, 20, 50 cent pieces. So for 10 bucks, they sold him. And I have no idea what Potiphar bought him for, but he's there as a servant in the house. And what's the theme that we see that I had you underline there in your Bibles? The Lord is with him. The Lord's with him in the middle of the cistern. The Lord's with him on the wagon ride. The Lord Lord is with him at Potiphar's house. And notice in the text how this is a better season 
than Joseph had had just prior. Verse 2 says he prospered. Verse 3 says success in everything he did. Verse 4 says found favor and that he was entrusted with everything Potiphar owned. And I think if you were to graph this out as if you were to kind of graft out the temptation thing, as, as, temptation, as favor goes up in our lives, temptation goes up on a graph, just up and to the right. With favor goes temptation. Or to say it another way, self-reliance. We're much more tempted to live in self-reliance in chapter 39 when things are going well than we are in chapter 37 when we're in the middle of the dark in the bottom of a cistern. Self-reliance is a greater temptation when things are unraveling and we're surrounded with darkness and we have no idea how we're going to get through what we're going through. In a sense, when we hit times of suffering and hardship, in a sense, it's a bit of forced dependence on God. In a sense, it's like all the fuel, it's great time for spiritual renewal. Why? Because you're kind of at the end of yourself. If Joseph was relying on, remember, he was 17 when he was tossed to the bottom of the cistern. So if it was tempting for Joseph to be quite self-reliant, he got stripped of that self-reliance pretty well when he got tossed down there and his brother stripped him of the robe and dipped it in animal's blood and went back to dad and said, hey, dad, Joseph's dead. An animal devoured him. So Jacob thinks Joseph's dead and he sold off on a wagon ride headed to who knows where. What happens through all of that is, and we know that in our own journeys, right, when we hit hard times in our lives, we're kind of brought to our knees and we're calling out to God and we're turning and saying, Lord, help, come rescue, guide, lead. I need a breakthrough. So self-reliance isn't as great a temptation in the bottom of the cistern. However, follow me here. When you hit chapter 39 seasons in your life, perhaps some of you are there right now. I know there's a lot of seniors graduating that feel chapter 39. The moment they get that diploma as they've been waiting, they find favor from the eyes of the Lord. Things are going well. There's success around every turn. There's a lot of affirmation, approval. Everyone's given high fives. In the general thing, rhythms of your life are just going well. God is with you. You sense his presence. Job's going well. Marriage is going well. Health's going well. Family's going well. It's chapter 39. In those moments, I think we're much more vulnerable to a pattern of self-reliance and therefore vulnerable to a greater degree of kind of an onslaught of temptation. And that's what we see with Joseph here. I think he's right in the middle of God's will. He's right where God wants him to be. Clearly, the Lord's with him. God's blessing him. How in the world is he having all the favor and taking over things in Potiphar's household? Because God's with him. He's right in the middle doing what God wants him to do, and he finds himself now it was an onslaught, what I'm calling a full court press of temptation. And so first observation is, when we find ourselves in seasons of life where the line of favor is going up and to the right, very important, right there, we ought to have some things on our dashboard, go off and say, hey, careful now. Self-reliance, greater temptation to go self-reliant, and just a general greater temptation of vulnerability to what we're gonna read about Here, let's see what happens. Verse six and following. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. So probably best guess for Joseph here, he's probably in his mid-20s. He was sold when he was 17. The next age marker we get for Joseph in the story is chapter 41, and he's 30 at that point. So there's some things, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, that happen. My best guess, I think he's in his mid, perhaps late 20s here, 
He's been in Potiphar's house, gaining uh, obviously a lot of responsibility, and he gets to see how he leads. So young man in his mid-20s, Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. Come to bed with me, she says. Verse 8, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked, now the word wicked there means godless. So in other words, how could I behave in such a way as if you're not even in the picture, Lord? That's kind of what that, that's what that word's referring to, a wicked thing, and sin against God. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So observation number one about temptation is in times of favor, there will be greater vulnerability to the temptation to strike. Observation number two is no matter how strong the temptation is, God always provides a way to overcome. There is a way to overcome. So notice here as Potiphar is away, Mrs. Potiphar takes notice of this favor that seems to be on Joseph's life. She's drawn to him. And would you agree with me that this is a full court press temptation put upon this young man? She's not taking no for an answer on the front end. It could be borderline argued that she's ordering him to go to bed with her because in a sense, she's kind of his boss when Mr. Potiphar is away. Mrs. Potiphar got to run in the house and he's com- she's coming after him repeatedly, a full court press. And I couldn't help but think, perhaps today, find someone in this room right now, you're walking in the footsteps of Joseph and you know it. You know you're in the middle of chapter 39. You've got a relationship that perhaps was just a friendship deal. Could it be a coworker? Could it be an old classmate? Could it be just an acquaintance? Somewhere along the way, the relationship, and it's right on the tipping point, You're toying around with some thoughts of it going to a place you know would not honor God. And right now, you're right in the middle of that debate. And maybe the Lord has brought you here for this moment, for such a time as this, to see how Joseph handled it. I think we get a lot of wisdom. All the things that we saw in immaturity at 17 in the bottom of the cistern, we're seeing the beams of his interior world being strengthened now and on display for what we see him doing now. Because his response to Mrs. Potiphar's full court temptation is what? Did you notice the strong language he used? Verse eight, he refused. Verse nine, he told her. Or verse eight, he told her. Verse nine, he said, how could I sin against God this way? Verse 10, he refused not only her seduction, but even to be in her physical presence. Don't miss that. He said, I'm gonna do what I can just to not even be physically in the same proximity. And then we'll see in verse 12, he runs out of the house. So my point in all this is Joseph did what he could in the strength that he had. He did what he could in the strength that he had, and then he trusted God with the rest. Notice it doesn't say after Mrs. Potiphar says, hey, come to bed with me, Joseph. Notice it doesn't say in verse 8 that Joseph said to her, "Uh, wait a minute, give me a few minutes. I'd like to go and pray about that. It doesn't say that. Or it doesn't say to her, oh, wait a minute, uh, let me kind of seek some godly counsel about that. No, 
Joseph knew what God wanted done in that moment. How often in our lives, think back to the temptation in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, how often are we going to be able to stand before God and really plead true ignorance to what he wants done? Not very often. I know for me, my confession to him is going to be, no, Lord, it was really clear what you really wanted me to do there. Where I failed is in the execution of it. I just didn't carry out my intentions well. I knew what you wanted. I just didn't do it. James 4.17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. You want a one-sentence definition of sin in the Bible? There you go. James 4.17. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and simply doesn't do it, sins. A pretty good commentary on our human condition. In this case, Joseph is very confident and very clear with what God wants done. This is not his wife. He knows he's not to have sexual relations with her. This is his master's wife. This is wrong. This is not what God wants. So he refuses. He tells her. He runs. He removes himself from the physical presence with her and around her. And I think in this, we get a great display of gang. This is what it's going to take in battling back and overcoming temptation. This is not a passive deal. If you haven't figured it out yet, you're not going to be able to navigate the brokenness and fallenness of this world, your own fallen sinful nature, and an enemy who's ready to take any of us out at any time. You're not going to be able to navigate all of that in a posture of passivity. You're going to have to be active and engaged, and it's going to involve your whole person, mind, body, will, and soul. Do you see how Joseph here just exercises his will? He takes his mind, processes what Mrs. Potiphar has said, and immediately engages his will. And he says to his will, I refuse to go there. Doesn't say anything about, I'm sure there were a lot of things hormonally going on within him, attraction type things kicking up, but here's what he knew. He engages his will and he refuses to go there. And then he says, I'm not gonna do this. And what does he point to? I'm not gonna dishonor God this way. And I'm not going to dishonor my boss this way. I'm not going to do it. And I think in that, we get a great picture of what it's going to take for us in the overcoming posture. I like what Dallas Willard says about all of this. I put the quote in your notes. Dallas says, those with a well-kept heart are persons who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. Their will functions as it should, to choose what is good and avoid what is evil. And the other components of their nature cooperate to that end. In other words, then their bodies begin to participate in what their wills have chosen. They need not be perfect, hear this, but what all people manage in at least a few times and areas of life, they manage in life as a whole. Temptation will come. It's normal Christian life to be experiencing temptation. Even Jesus himself, Matthew chapter four, right after his baptism, which is a good reminder for those of you when you hit spiritual mountaintop moments, even right after your baptism, often the three to six months following a baptism, a big decision like that, often it's kind of full court press of temptation comes at you. It's Jesus, right after his baptism, led by the spirit into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the enemy for 40 days. It's normal Christian life to experience temptation. It doesn't have to be normal to cave to it. God says, when you encounter it, I will give you the resources to overcome it. Joseph is a great example. 
Jesus another example. I put in your notes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a good verse to memorize if you find yourself on the battlefield of temptation. No temptation, Paul says, has seized you except what is common to man. You know what that means? We're never gonna encounter anything that's new under the sun. So some of you might be saying, I don't think anybody could possibly understand what's coming against me. Right on the heels of that should be 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's very common what, what's coming against you. It's not new under the sun. It's called being a human in a fallen world with an enemy that is coming after you. And God is faithful. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. Hallelujah. So that you can stand up under it. I put in your notes the Greek word for temptation, pyrosmos. Pyrosmos, it means this, a trial, a testing, a temptation. Joseph is in a pyrosmos moment in chapter 39. And if you live life long enough, you will not lack for pyrosmos moments in our lives. It's going to come. And graduates, I can't think of a more timely picture for you as you transition from high school into the next chapter, be that college or the working world. You will not lack graduates for environments of temptation to surround you. That will not be a problem. There'll be plenty of temptations. And here's what I want you to hold on to. Know that no matter the ingredients of the temptation, you will not lack, hear this, for God's resources to overcome whatever temptation you find yourself in. He will provide a way, which means application to our lives is what? Guard our heart. Like Dallas says, guard your heart, care for your heart, take care of your heart, cultivate the will, exercise the muscle of choosing Jesus and saying yes, work that over and over and be very careful who you surround yourself with. All these things play into it because it's gonna be normal that you're in environments of temptation. It's, it's not healthy for us to think we're just gonna kind of insulate ourselves, even those of you heading off to Christian colleges, lest you think a Christian college has any less degree of environments or pirasmos moments, there's ample of those in Christian campus as in non-Christian campuses. Are you with me? So the point here is that when you find yourself in those environments, know God is with you, give you the resources to overcome, and you don't have to cave. It's normal to encounter them. It doesn't have to be normal to cave into them. I can't help but think, why can't it be this graduating class, which is one of the largest in Eagle's history, of 29 graduates coming up in a bit. I think it's one of the largest we've ever had. Graduates, I can't, why can't for the 29 of you, why can't your college years be some of the most spiritually formative, spiritually growing? Why can't that be marked with holiness, righteousness, goodness, and truth? Why not? Why not? Why can't this be the season where those roots grow down deep into Christ? Why not in the midst of whatever comes about you, even if it's unpopular, even if it's kind of the smallest of the crowd, why not? That's what I'm trusting. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm holding out for. And that's what we're charging you to do. If we want to see the environments change in our university and college settings and in our workplace, you know where it starts? The people who are inhabiting those places changing and bringing Christ into those environments. You know what'll change some of those value systems? Is the right people carrying the spirit of Christ alive and well within them, entering into those places of darkness and standing for righteousness and not caving when it comes. Why can't it be that this graduating class comes out of college with relationships marked with purity? Why not? Why can't it be? Why can't it be that you stand on your wedding day and you have purity as a testimony to bring to that altar? Why not? And you, can, you know what's gonna happen though? You can't wait 
to get into those moments, graduates. You can't wait to get into the Friday night, late night situation and decide, I wonder how I'm gonna handle this. You go with Joseph right now and decide on the front end. You with me? Ask any of the adults around the room how this works. You decide long before you get in the heat of the battle how you're gonna handle it in the middle of the battle. You decide right now. You engage the will, you cultivate a lifestyle, a pattern to care for the heart well, you train the body to respond in a way that is honoring to God, and you decide the number one filter for all your decisions is gonna be this, what Joseph models here. I want is does this honor God or not? Does this honor God? Is this an honoring to God thing? If it's not, I'm done. I'm walking away, I'm refusing, I'm walking out, I'm pushing it away. Are you with me? Because that's... It's not gonna be a lack of temptation, but what it can be is a lack of those caving in the midst of temptation. And is his grace sufficient for the times we fall on our face? We're not gonna get this right 100% of the time, but here's what it should be. Maturity should be marked with less caving as the years go on. It should be normal that as we grow with Jesus, we're able to be strengthened to push back against the things we used to fall on our face with. His grace is sufficient. He'll meet you there when you fall. Surround yourself with the right people. Be in this book. Trust the spirit and choose wisely. Let's see a graduating class rise up and stand for holiness and righteousness and goodness and truth. What a testimony that would be. and What a challenge back to your own household and to our own congregation that would be. And I think this class has it in it. I think this class does have it in it. So first, first application from Joseph's life about temptation. As favor goes up, vulnerability, temptation goes up. Second application is when temptation comes and it's gonna come hard and come strong, even when it comes hard and really strong and Mrs. Potiphar refusing day after day, a relentless type deal, here's what you know. God's resources will be there to give you what you need to overcome. You don't have to cave. And then verse three, let's see what happens now. It might surprise you, the next twist of the story, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, speaking of Joseph, and none of the household servants was inside, so he's alone in the house. Mrs. Potiphar caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. So he's just still at it. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them. This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought here that you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, wife told him saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. The third observation from this story is that choosing God's way doesn't mean those around you will. Choosing God's way doesn't mean everyone around you is gonna. Or to say it another way, just because you stand up and make a decision that you know is what God wants right there, it doesn't exempt you from the unholy choices of others around you. And some of you, this is where you're at in your life right now. 
These are the times in our lives where we go, that's not right. That's not right. Mrs. Potiphar, you're selling him out. She's kind of edited the story, yeah? (laughs) Not quite how it happened there. And I I have, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, I think Mr. Potiphar kind of suspects there's some shadiness going on, but he's also got a lot going on here too. So he decides, I'm gonna throw him in prison. That's not right. And you look at it and go, hey, wait a minute. Joseph did the right thing. He resisted temptation. He stood up for what God wanted. God's with him. God's given favor to him. What do we do with this? These are the, this is not right. This is the innocent are being punished and the guilty are going free. Do you know who best understands this beyond just a Joseph type character? How about Jesus? How about Jesus when he's standing with the crowd, with Pilate? And he's got a guilty prisoner Barabbas on his right. A well-known, the text says, guilty prisoner named Barabbas. A murderer. Everyone in the crowd knew he's guilty. And Pilate says to the crowd, hey, we're going to free one of these guys. Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas? And they all chant what? Free Barabbas. What do we do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Wait a minute. You mean the guilty one goes free and the innocent one is crucified? Jesus understands. Some of you are right there. Some of you are handling things the way God wants it handled, but some people around you are not, and you're feeling a bit crucified day after day because you're on the receiving end of the sinful and unholy choices of others around you. You're with Joseph in the prison. You're with Jesus in front of the raging crowd. And just because the circumstances are not going well, it doesn't mean you're not right where God wants you to be. It's probably an indication you're walking in the footsteps of the Savior. And this is what we see with Joseph's storyline. You're like, because you'd like to think the second half of this chapter would be like, oh, yes. And then God, like, you know, he just put the stamp of approval on Joseph's decisions. He gave Mrs. Potiphar her due. That's not how it happened. He ends up in prison. Mrs. Potiphar's still running the house, and he's in prison. What's up with that? What do we do with that? And for those of you who identify with this part of the story, I want to encourage you like Joseph needed to be encouraged, no doubt, in the prison cell. What feels like the end is just a comma. You know, sometimes experiences in our lives happen and we feel like it's a period. We feel like that's the end. If you've still got breath of life in your lungs, the story is not done. God's not done. It might look like a period, but it's really just a comma. It's a waiting, it's a pause, it's a sorting some things out, it's a I'm not sure where this is going, it's a comma, and God's gonna finish that sentence. We'll see in the weeks ahead, God finishes the sentence for Joseph. Mrs. Potiphar looks like she's getting the last word in chapter 39. She's not getting the last word. God's gonna get the last word. So hang in there. Those of you living in the comma, on the receiving end of a bunch of sinful choices of others, feeling like injustice seems to be the theme, feeling like that's not right, keeps rising up. Identify with Jesus. Stand with him with Pilate there. Pay attention to what he did. Let the father be his defender. Identify with Joseph and remember this. The story's not over. There's more to be written. God's gonna finish it. He's gonna get the last word. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, the fourth book in the series is called The Silver Chair. There's a character in the book named Jill 
She finds herself lost in dark woods, sobbing and sobbing. Her sobbing turns into thirst. She finds herself thirsty and sobbing in the middle of the dark woods. And she happens upon a stream. And she wants to run towards that stream because she's so thirsty. But as she approaches the stream, she sees a large lion lying beside the stream. Of course, that's Aslan, the Christ figure in the series. There's a big lion. There's the stream. There's her thirst. Follow this here. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will, will you promise um, not, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Church family, graduates, parents, extended family, as we live in this world, in this day, at this time, we will not lack for circumstances that try to pull us to other streams. We will not lack for times when we find ourselves in the middle of the dark woods with Jill, thirsting, searching. We will not lack for environments when the favor of God is poured out like Joseph in 39 and you're on the receiving end of a full court press you never imagined you would be. But here's the image I want to leave us with. Let's make a covenant together to stay by the stream of living water. There is only one stream. There is only one river of living water that's going to quench in the inmost place. There'll be plenty of poles to throw and find another stream. But hear this. God's going to finish the story. You might be at a comma. He's going to finish the story. When he finishes it, you want to be by that stream. And you want to be in close companionship with that lion. When he finishes it, be near to that lion. Even though right now, you might feel a little bit like Jill. There's kind of a holy tremble in here like God. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. Trust me, stay near the lion, drink deeply from the stream. He'll finish it. Let's pray.